there has been a, a cultural phenomenon happening maybe the last decade, but I've not known about it for that long. Some of you may not be aware of it either. And I thought it really strange when I first began to see this happening. It primarily happens in social media, Facebook and Twitter, places like that. But people have been calling other people, most of the time famous people, a goat. <laughs> have, you, have you seen this? Like, it's become so, so common calling someone a goat that the, the, there's now like emojis being used that it'll just say someone's name and it'll say that they're, a, and then it'll be a picture of a goat. And I thought this really strange because it's not, when I see it, it's not, it's not in, a, in a derogatory or a negative way. It's not like, a, you know, making fun of someone and calling them a goat. And so I've, I've just been, I've been, I was kind of slow to this whole thing. And if, if you've seen it and you know what it is, then you're probably laughing. You're like, Matt, uh, I can't believe you were that slow to it. Or you may be here this morning and be like, I haven't even seen that. But uh, yeah, it usually happens with like sports figures. A lot of times in the NBA and really specifically, I see it a lot of times connected to Michael Jordan or LeBron James. It's like Le- LeBron is the GOAT or Ma- Michael Jordan is the GOAT. And, and I, I struggled. Like, what, what are they doing calling them GOATs? Anybody else know what I'm talking about this morning? Okay, I see some heads bobbing, like heads bobbing now. Yeah, the greatest of all time, G-O-A-T, greatest of all time. Ah, yeah, no, oh, I've seen it. I, it makes sense now. I can go home and read Facebook without getting mad. <laughs> see, it in, see it in some of your eyes. You're like, wait a second. You just got it too. It's an acronym. But we, but we, we have these kind of questions with all sorts of things. I bet you're actually pretty good at it, too. We don't do a lot of crowd participation on Sunday mornings in the sermon a lot of times, but I'm going to ask you to participate, so don't leave me hanging here. I'm going to ask you a question, and you come back with the answer. I bet you're better at it than you think. Uh, Who is the greatest person to ever walk the earth? You guys didn't disappoint. You got the Sunday school answer down, guys. Good job. Uh, What is the greatest book ever written? Mm, man, you guys are two for two. Who or, or what is the, the, the best college football team to ever play the game of football? No, don't answer that. Don't answer that. I don't want to be guilty of uh, being the, the preacher that started a church fight, literally, in the, in the sanctuary. You guys are pretty good at it. We have these sorts of questions with all kinds of topics. Greatest car, greatest movie, greatest musician or band, greatest contestant on Dancing with the Stars. Can I get a witness? Uh, We have these sorts of questions, and we call these like mega questions, like big questions about who or what is the greatest, right? This is not a new thing. Calling someone a goat may be a new thing. Um, I'm not actually sure about that. Uh, But this is a a thing that dated all the way back to the time of Jesus. These type of questions, like the greatest, weighty, heavy type questions, and we have one of these sorts of questions in our text this morning. Uh, As a bit of a reminder, we're in a section of Mark where Jesus has turned the page in his ministry, so to speak. He set his face toward, toward Jerusalem and Calvary and to a cross where he'll ultimately die and, and give his life to pay for the sins of his people, where he'd rise again from the dead. He set his face to that, his mission. And with this transition, he's, he's, he has a bit of a different attitude, a different uh, posture almost towards who he is. He's allowing people now to openly call him the Messiah, the Son of God. He's demonstrating through prophecy, uh, real, real clearly through his actions, that he's the fulfillment of prophecy. He's doing all of this in a very public way. 
And now Mark is putting together, we've been studying through Mark's gospel, Mark's putting together a string of questions where these religious leaders of Jesus' day are are coming before Jesus trying to to stump him, trying to to trip him up in one of these questions. And and everywhere he turns, someone else is trying to trap him. Just to remind you, in in this beautiful way that Mark strings these together, three weeks ago, we saw this question of authority. On whose authority are you doing the? Are you teaching the? Are you cleansing the temple, clearing the temple? The Sanhedrin came to him with that question. Two weeks ago, we had a question about civil responsibilities, about our government, about rendering unto Caesar what is Caesar's, but unto God what is God's, Jesus says. This question came from the Pharisees and the Herodians. Last week, we have a third question about the resurrection. What's it going to be like when we die? This is from the Sadducees who don't believe in resurrection. And then this week, we have a question about the greatest commandment from a scribe. And so all of these have been attempts to turn the crowds against Jesus so that ultimately he'll be destroyed. If, if Jesus fumbles on any one of these questions, the crowds can shift. His popularity can, can actually be something that would bring his demise. He could be killed as a heretic by the Jews. Or if he trips the wrong way, he can be killed as a, as a leader of political insurrection by the Romans. So they're trying to trap him. But as we've seen three weeks in a row, it's not wise to try to match wits with Jesus intellectually. He will win every single time, and he does. You don't want to miss next week either. A little bit of a spoiler alert. Jesus turns the tables on him, and he becomes the questioner. And so you'll only be here for, for the text next week. But this morning, our question from the scribe is a bit different. It's a bit different. This, this question about the greatest commandment comes from a scribe, and, and it's not a malicious trap. It's not something to try to trip Jesus up or to get him killed. It's a sincere question. It comes from an honest place. It comes from a a, a scribe who it seems has a bit of intrigue or even possible interest in Jesus. The question reveals as much about the, the questioner as it does about what Jesus says in response to the question. And so let's walk back through our text. You've already heard it read, and let's make some observations. Ask the Lord to teach us this morning through what Jesus says. Our conversation begins when, again, one of these scribes, Religious leaders takes a question to Jesus. Look at verse 24 again. Or 28. Um, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, he asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? A little background here on who these scribes are. I think that's helpful. He's a religious lawyer. Oftentimes in the scriptures, you see them connected with the Pharisees. They're often associated together. Probably this day had begun like many other. He uh, was going to go to the synagogue, see kind of what was on the docket for the day, see what was going on in the synagogue. That's kind of where he hung out. That's his people. He hears that Jesus is in town, this guy from Nazareth that has been doing some crazy stuff. He's heard some incredible miracles, some incredible teachings uh, surrounding this guy, Jesus. And it just so happens that he's being confronted by the Sadducees. We'll go check that out. It didn't matter to him that these Sadducees uh, were enemies Remember their doctrine about the resurrection? Remember, they, they don't believe in the resurrection. So this, this scribe, he, he's, he's an enemy of the Sadducees. So it, it doesn't matter, though, because he wants to see. He's not going to really hear the teaching of the Sadducees. He doesn't really care about that. He wants to see this showdown. He wants to see these Sadducees uh, confront this guy, Jesus, this backwoods country preacher. And so he came to this dispute. Actually, probably got there and, and secretly, somehow, found himself rooting for these Sadducees, confronting Jesus. Because remember, like them, though they disagreed about the resurrection, like them, this, this scribe, he had a religion that was built around human achievement. 
what he could do for himself, works-based salvation. We earn it, right? And Jesus is always a threat to self-righteousness. And so even, even though I disagree with these, these Sadducees about the resurrection, this guy's a bigger threat. And so probably somewhere on the inside, he was secretly pulling, that the, pulling for these Sadducees that they would somehow trip Jesus up, make a fool of him. And so as this scribe is watching this showdown between two of his enemies, he's kind of between a rock and a hard place. It's sort of like watching Alabama and Florida play. You want to watch it because it's a good game, but you can't root for either one of these jokers. <laughs> However, something remarkable happens here. Though he probably secretly wanted the Sadducees to make a fool out of Jesus, as he's witnessing this, this answer from Jesus, this Galilean preacher, as he's watching him answer these questions, the, the startling brilliance of Jesus is, is apparent. It's obvious the way he answers these questions about the resurrection, and he finds himself inwardly applauding Jesus, the bigger enemy for him. And so subconsciously, he even he's drawn to Jesus, the enemy that he didn't expect to side with. I think even in his own heart and mind, this was probably a turn of events for him. And before he knew it, he's the one with the question. He's so intrigued by this, 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 this Jesus guy that he has a, a genuine question. It's like he can't even help himself. A man of this kind of brilliance, this scribe saw an opportunity for, for him to have a genuine question answered. And so then comes the question. You've already read, heard it in your, twi- your text. The command, which commandment is the most important of all? Which one's the goat, right? Which one's the greatest of all? You need to understand something about scribes to understand this question, right? This is something that they did commonly. This was, this was a, a normal thing for the scribes. You see, the scribes, they love to, to reduce their religion down to a single, simple statement, right? That's bull. All, they, and remember, the law is, is huge and has all these, these commands and things that are a part of it. The sacrificial system, the ceremonial system, all of that goes into it. And so let's boil it down to a single, simple, clear statement. They often try to do this. And this is not uncommon. I mean, you think about it, we do, the, we do the same thing. If you take your bulletin and look in it, you'll see uh, worshiping Jesus, sharing life, living on mission. We do a whole lot of things as popular Spring Baptist Church, but we, we try to summarize it with a mission statement in this way. That's what we're about. All of the things we're doing should be, doing, uh, be, be working toward this end. And they did the same thing. Rabbi Hillel, one of the most famous rabbis, um, Jewish rabbis uh, at this time, uh, had a Gentile man, a pagan man, come and ask him, said, uh, I'll convert to Judaism, I'll convert to your religion, if you can boil the whole thing down, if you can summarize the whole law while standing on one foot. And Rabbi Hillel says, what you hate yourself, do not do to your neighbor. This is the whole law, the rest is commentary, go and learn it. So this was a common thing, that this was a typical thing that they would try to do, this type of answer to these types of questions. So the scribe comes to Jesus, he's an eager, eager seeker, he's an honest inquirer, and he comes to Jesus and says, can you boil all the law down? What's the most important? Summarize it for me. Help me out. And his answer doesn't disappoint. If you continue in the text, Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So Jesus' answer to the scribe kind of has two parts. First part of his answer is known as the Shema. We're not going to spend a lot of time here because when we walk through the book of Deuteronomy, where it comes from, Deuteronomy 6, we spend a whole Sunday uh, walking through this text. And so 
Uh, we're not going to spend a lot of time breaking down the first part of Jesus' answer there. If you uh, want to dive into that, it's on our website. You can go back and listen. But devout Jews would have, would have known this. They would have been able to, 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 they would have memorized this, and they would have repeated it every morning and every evening of every day. Faithful Jews knew this like the back of their hands. Devout Jews actually wore it around their neck in a little uh, leather box. Uh, sincere Jews would have hung it on the doors of their home, right by the doorpost. Everyone knew this part of Jesus' answer. It's an acknowledgement of loving God with everything you are. And again, soul, mind, strength there. It's, it's not breaking apart the, the person. It's not saying there's multiple parts to us and you have to love God. It's, it's the Jewish way of saying you love God with every ounce of your being. Everything you are should be loving God, your whole self. Kent Hughes says uh, of this, it doesn't take much of a man to be a believer, but it takes all there is of him. This is sort of the Jewish way of saying that. You have to love the Lord, your God, with everything you are. And then the second part of Jesus' answer, also very familiar concept for them, comes from Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Love your neighbor as yourself. And this is not a limiting verse. It's not like, oh, okay, well, I'm glad God put that scripture in there because, uh, yeah, so I can love my neighbor, the person that lives right next door to me, but that joker that lives across town, that jerk that I don't get, get along with, he's not my neighbor, so I get a pass, right? No. This is an all-inclusive, everyone is your neighbor. Uh, and this, so here's the, well, so, so what the question then I think for us this morning is, What's the, what's the genius in Jesus' answer here? And we know it is genius because of the guy's response, the scribe's response. Answered rightly, teacher. He's blown away by Jesus' answer, but it seems to us, reading it, that Jesus is just quoting two Old Testament verses. So where's the genius in that? The ideas of loving God and loving fellow man had been voiced by other rabbis, by other teachers. But, here it is, this was the first time that any rabbi, teacher, religious leader had fused these two specific references in Scripture together in some kind of inseparable bond. Here's the gravity of what Jesus is saying. Jesus is taking these two passages that they would have known well. The Shema, Leviticus 19, love God with everything you are, love your neighbor as yourself, and the implications behind what he's saying. He's connecting these two in a way that you can't take them apart. That is genius, and that is what was so shocking for them. I'm going to give you three reasons for why that was so weighty, why that was uh, such, a, such a, a genius answer from Jesus. Number one, it summarized the entire Ten Commandments. Think about this. In the way that he answered, the first part of his answer, love God, summarizes the first four commandments, which are all about loving and worshiping God alone. The second part of his answer, love your neighbor as yourself, summarizes the last six commandments, which all have to do with your love for one another, with your fellow man. And so Jesus' answer here is completely exhaustive in covering the Ten Commandments. It summarizes in one statement the entire Ten Commandments. Second reason, it's, it's, it's weighty. And second reason, it is genius. It shows that, the love for, that your love for God and your love for one another can't be separated. I've already mentioned this. But if you have your vertical affections in order, then your horizontal relationships will follow. Right? If your love for God is right in the right place, then your love for fellow man and woman will be following after it. Now, we live in a fallen world. We live in a world filled with sin. Every day you turn on the TV and you see that. You see the consequences of living in a fallen world. So that doesn't mean that everyone will love you and that all your relationships will be warm and fuzzy and happy and you'll live in some kind of utopian society if you love God well. 
But when your love for God is where it should be, then you will find that generally speaking, you're going to be more loving and you're going to be more lovable, right? And so your love for neighbor will not be impossible. That's why John says in 1 John 4, 1 John 4, uh, verse 21, he says this, and this commandment we have from him, that's Jesus, whoever loves God must also love his neighbor. John's summarizing and stating again what Jesus is saying right here. It's senseless to think that you can love God and hate your neighbor. You must love God and love neighbor. They're inseparable. Third reason that Jesus' answer here is is particularly genius. The as yourself, that's in the, the statement, love your neighbor as yourself, is a radical, impossible commandment. I mean, think about this. By saying love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus is giving us a standard that's, that's not only convicting, but impossible. Apart from his work in us, apart from him changing our hearts, giving us new hearts. We love ourselves. You love yourself. Whether you would admit it or not, you love yourself. Despite at any moment what you may change about your character or your appearance, right? You love yourself. And Jesus is saying love your neighbor like that. You're worried about where your next meal is going to come from? You're, you're going to make sure that you're going to eat tonight? What about your neighbor? Do you care enough about him that you're going to make sure he eats just as much as you do? Your bills are paid. There's a roof over your head. Do you care about your neighbor that much? That you would make sure his are also. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's a radical command. That is impossible apart from his spirit changing our sinful hearts. It's a weighty statement. There's genius in the way that Christ puts these two together. Because they would not have denied, love the Lord your God with all, with all you are, right? Love, love the Lord your God with everything that you are and love your neighbor as yourself. But what does that mean when you connect these two in an unbreakable bond? What a powerful teaching it truly was. The symmetry that Jesus uh, gives us when he puts these two together. It couldn't be disputed. The way Jesus uh, gave them this answer and intertwined scripture so marvelously, it had never been done before. It was brilliant. It was perfect. Neither part of this religious attack from the, the scribe, from the Pharisees, from the Sadducees, anybody listening on that day couldn't have disputed what Jesus was saying. And here's what makes it even more profound. Think about this with me. As he says this, there is no one under the sound of his voice that could charge him with breaking either part of it. Jesus had fulfilled both parts of his command perfectly. Love the Lord your God with all that you are and love your neighbor as yourself. No one standing there could say that he had failed in either command. And that's why it's so weighty. This powerful teaching, he's able to back up with his life. The scribe says to him, you see the scribe's answer. The scribe says to him, you're right, teacher. You're right, teacher. Now, I'll give you a reminder here. This guy, this, this scribe is standing here with all his buddies. All of them are standing by watching. The cronies have come out in full force to attack Jesus. And yet, he says, you're right, teacher. Now, two weeks ago, we see a group of people using the word teacher, and it's hypocritical. It's, 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 it's fake. They're giving him false compliments. They're trying to puff him up. This is genuine. He's giving him respect. Teacher, rabbi, you're, you're right. I think, I think in this moment, it's not just a simple affirmation. He's not like, yeah, you, you passed my pop quiz. That's it. That was the answer. You got it. Ding, ding, ding. Good job, Jesus. I think, I think in this moment, it's more than that. I think for this scribe, it's an, it's an aha moment. In that moment, when Jesus puts these two uh, verses together and puts together this answer like this, he's like, yeah, that's it. 
That's it. I mean, you, you did it. You encapsulated the whole of the law in these two statements. You put it together. That's it, teacher. Beautifully said. He continues. The scribe continues. You have truly said that he is one and that there is no other beside him. And to love him with all your heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself. So at this point, the scribe has complimented Jesus on the right answer. I think dumbfounded, blown away, mesmerized by it. And now to this point, he's basically just parroted back what Jesus has said. He's affirmed what uh, Jesus says and that he believes what Jesus has said to be true. He's excited that Jesus has made this so clear and so, so simple. But then you have this profound statement from this scribe. Continue reading. So what you've said is, is true. What, what you've just said, and then he goes, is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. This is a huge statement. I don't think we get how big this statement is coming from this scribe. Remember, he's a religious leader among the Jews. <laughs> He's just summarized everything that Jesus just said. And then this statement says something about his thinking, says something about the change in his heart that has started to take place. His understanding of scripture. Well, let's see how Jesus responds to his statement and then unpack what's going on here. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, something about what he just said. And again, all he said is repeating what Jesus said, echoing back what Jesus said. And then this statement about all of that is more important than whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You are not far from the kingdom of God. And in this simple statement from Jesus, he's giving him a compliment and a stern warning at the same time. A compliment in that Jesus sees that this scribe's able to think for himself. He commends him for thinking for himself. He's not just following the, the other scribes and Pharisees like a blind sheep. Jesus recognized that he understood there was more to following God than a simple system, than rigorous religion. There's a spiritual change of heart that must take place. And Jesus compliments him. The way that you're thinking is not far from the kingdom of God. Friends, I think we need to realize that this morning. Some people are living miles away from the kingdom of God. And I think you can do that in multiple ways. Either one, living for yourself with no thought of eternal things, or thinking that you're living for God when really what you're relying on is your own works. Relying upon what I can do for God. That if I'm good enough, maybe he'll give me a pass and I'll get into heaven if my good outweighs my bad. Friends, that's far from the kingdom of God. And some people are super close. Some people are right on the precipice. Some people are right at the threshold. The scribe was very close, Jesus says. There's a compliment in that from Jesus, but it's also a stern warning. Though you are very close, you are decisively not there. And close can never be close enough. It doesn't matter how close you get. Close is never close enough. There's no, there's no rounding up in heaven. Like you were, you were so close, we're just going to give you that half a point you needed. Welcome, welcome into the kingdom. There's no rounding up. So it's possible to be within an inch of heaven and still go to hell for eternity. And this is the warning that Jesus is giving the scribe. You're on the right track. You're thinking rightly. You're, you're, you're moving in the right direction. You're so close, but you're not a part of the kingdom of God. So it's a compliment, but it's a stern warning as well. So let's unpack the statement from Jesus. It's unique. I think there's weightiness in it, and there's something for us that we need to hear and apply so let's unpack this statement from Jesus about being near to the kingdom of God. 
So that was the introduction to our text, our sermon this morning. So now let's dive in. In the time that we have left, I want to take this terrifying statement from Jesus and try to make some application for us today. And so we'll do so in three questions. All right. So three questions that are going to guide us in unpacking this statement. Number one, what does it mean to be near the kingdom of God? What Jesus tells him. What does it mean to be near the kingdom of God? Number two, what does it mean to be far from the kingdom of God? And number three, how do we get into the kingdom of God? I think that's the question that we must wrestle with here because this is what Jesus has told the scribe. So number one, what does it mean to be near the kingdom of God? For the scribe in our text, remember that came to Jesus with this question. And again, it's, it's, his, it's his answer, not so much the repeating of what Jesus has said, but that all of this, this ceremonial sacrificial system, is worthless if you're not loving the Lord your God with all that you are and loving your neighbors yourself. So that, Jesus says, or Mark says, was wisely answering Jesus. So why is it that Jesus turns then and says to him, very near the kingdom of God. What does it mean to be near the kingdom of God? Uh, I think for this scribe in our text, it meant at least five things. I'll give you those. I know we got lots of lists this morning, but five things I think it meant for this scribe to be near the kingdom of God. Number one, being near the kingdom means understanding it's a, it's, that it's a matter of the heart and not just a checklist. Being near the kingdom means it's a matter of your heart and not just a religious checklist. This man realized that loving God and loving neighbor were more important than, again, to quote him, all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Tells us a lot about what's in his heart, what's going on in his his heart. The entire ceremonial system, the entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament, which was central to the commands of God for Old Testament Jews. I don't want to minimize how small that is. That, that That was everything for them. It was the way they related to God, the way they had their sins removed. All of that was less important than loving God with one's whole self. There's a transition. There's, a, there's something happening in his thinking for him to see that. He's understanding it's a matter of the heart and not just a checklist. And this is far beyond where his peers were on this day. This is far beyond where a lot of people are today. Many people see religion as just a checklist of do's and don'ts. Well, the Bible is just an old book that has a bunch of do's and don'ts in it. What about you, friend? God wants your heart, not just your behavior. God wants all of you, not just some do-gooding to other people. God wants all of you. Are you relying upon religion or or church-going, even your attendance here this morning, or, or niceties towards your neighbor? Is that the foundation of your relationship? Or does God own you? Is God the boss, the supreme Lord of your life? Number two, being near The kingdom means thinking deeply about eternal things. The scribe was a thinking man. Jesus complimented him by saying that uh, he had answered wisely, Mark recalls. The scribe was intellectually convinced that Jesus was correct. Everything that this rabbi has said, that everybody's trying to get killed, that guy has just said something, and I agree wholeheartedly with it. He was a thinking man. Again, Kent Hughes in his commentary says, in a world as shallow as a birdbath, Those who enter the kingdom are those who are willing to pause and truly think about eternal things. He was thinking about eternal things. What about you? Have you taken time to consider eternity? Have you taken time to consider a holy God? 
Have you paused to think about the depth of your sinfulness, your your separation from this holy God and the consequences of that separation? Have you thought about the sacrifice that God has made in sending his son Christ to die on a cross? Are you thinking about eternal things? I think it's so easy in a culture where we have everything we need at our fingertips to not even think about eternal things. Maybe you haven't thought about eternal things because you assume them to be true because you grew up in a church in a Christian home and you're here every week and you don't think about that stuff, right? Think deeply, friend. Don't assume. Think deeply. Maybe you're here this morning you don't think about eternal things because you've written it off as child's play, as, as foolishness, at best folklore that has a, lo- a lot of people deceived. Maybe that's how you think of religion and, and Christianity even. Think deeply, friend. What if you're wrong? Number three, being near the kingdom means knowing the brokenness of the human heart. Being near the kingdom means knowing the brokenness of the human heart. Now, this is not enough that you would be in the kingdom, but it's necessary to even be near the kingdom, right? This scribe was very near because he understood the hard implications of what Jesus was saying. Loving God with everything you are and your neighbor as yourself, that's an impossible task. Why? Because we have broken and sinful hearts. The natural man doesn't love God with his whole heart, no matter how hard he tries. In your flesh, you can't muster up complete and total surrender and love for God, no matter how hard you try. There has to be a radical change on the inside of a person for this to happen. Do you understand how broken you are apart from Christ? Do you understand your condition before him? That even the faith, even the faith through which, by which you're saved is a gift from him, And that you can't produce that, you can't muster that up, that even that is is a gift to you? It's produced in you because of a a gift of grace that he would give it to you? Being near the kingdom means you realize the brokenness of the human heart. Number four, being near the kingdom means honesty with spiritual questions. Honesty with spiritual questions, not just going with the crowd, right? I mean, think about this scribe. He's naturally sided with, and for no, no telling how long, we don't know how old he was, maybe just a few years or maybe decades. He's naturally sided with his other buddies who are scribes and the Pharisees, enemies that have been trying to get Jesus killed for three years now. But he didn't allow his natural allegiances to keep him from seeking and acknowledging truth. He was honest with spiritual questions. Friends, there's hope for anyone that will break ranks to keep his conscience and to ask uh, honest questions. Number five, being near the kingdom means not just going with the crowd. This is similar to number four. The scribe was willing to risk mockery and shame to step up to the door of the kingdom, to look eternity face to face, to look at the Messiah eye to eye. Lack of courage, love of approval of man has been fatal to many human souls. What about you this morning? Are you more concerned with what your coworker would think of you if you profess faith in Christ, what a family member would think of you if you profess faith in Christ. This man was so close. He was even willing to, to, to risk ridicule and mockery from his closest friends and, and, and ministry partners. He was so close, so near to the kingdom, Jesus says. Yet, even though he was so near, he was not in the kingdom. At least our second question What does it mean to be far from the kingdom of God? If Jesus makes it clear, you're near, you're not there. You're near, but you're not there. What does it mean to be far from the kingdom of God? If if we take God at his word, 
If we believe what Jesus has said is true, we must must see then that this scribe, though he was not far from the kingdom, this scribe was still on the outside. I think we want to think, well, man, he's so close. Maybe Jesus would just give him a pass. Man, he's so close. There's things that are at work in his heart that, that maybe Jesus would just, man, give him a, you know, attaboy. Being almost there is not being there. Being near is not good enough. Being close means that the person is still dead in their sin. Evil Knievel in 1973 uh, was going to attempt to jump the Snake River on a jet-powered motorcycle. There's a ton of media coverage surrounding this event, a ton of build-up, news cameras were there. You can still uh, actually go on YouTube and watch all the, you know, the interview, interviews and leading up to the, the, the jump. Well, prior to the jump, he sent two unmanned attempts up the ramp over the river, and they both failed, falling hundreds, hundreds of feet down the cliff and into the Snake River. In an interview, he said, Evil Knievel's being interviewed, he says, I was running out of money. <laughs> I knew I only had one more shot. And so he loads himself into the rocket, the motorcycle, and he goes up the ramp, seemingly really fast, and into the air, and as he's about halfway over, the rocket fizzles out, and he falls uh, hundreds of feet and cuts himself out of his harness, and the parachute takes him away right before the motorcycle crashes into the bottom of the canyon. Almost, he said. So that could have been the way I died. People would just remember me as a, as a stuntman who failed at his last attempt. Or if I'd have made it, they'd have been like, well, anybody could do it. He said, I was almost there. I was so close. Making it halfway, or even if he'd have fallen just an inch short, is still not making it. You don't get partial credit for trying hard. It's not like the teacher in your, in your class, well, man, like, good effort. I'll give you partial credit. You did, you did pretty good. No, making it halfway or even within an inch is not making it, and it's the same spiritually. It's popular to talk about spiritual journeys, right, or, or spiritual pilgrimages, that, that people would be moving spiritually in some journey towards something. And, and there's, there's a sense in which that's okay, right? There's a sense in which once we know Christ, we're on this pathway to being more like Christ. And that's a journey, that's a pilgrimage, right? We're, we're journeying toward Christ, that daily he's identifying sin in our lives and we're becoming more Christ-like, that's certainly a growing exercise. And so that's not what I'm talking about here. But a whole lot of people in the world like to talk about like, I'm just on a spiritual journey. I'm on a, I'm on a pilgrimage. Friends, let me be real clear. A spiritual journey, a pilgrimage is absolutely pointless if it does not end in being a citizen of the kingdom, if it does not end with having Christ save you by his blood. That pilgrimage was pointless. Because being close or being near is not close enough. Being a pilgrim is not an end in itself. If it does not end with being in the kingdom, being a part of this one who will be king forever, being under his lordship, then then friends, your pilgrimage, your journey is pointless. It doesn't matter how close you are. So it doesn't matter if you're an inch or a mile, out of the kingdom is out of the kingdom. So when I ask the question, how far, or what does it mean to be far from the kingdom of God? It means being not in it. Because eternity is long, and whether it's an inch or whether it's a mile, if you miss the kingdom, it's done. It's done. So then that leads to our third question, and I believe probably our most important question. How do we enter the kingdom? I think if this scribe, we don't know what happens with him in our text. The Bible doesn't say. It doesn't say what happened with this gentleman, what happened with his life, whether he asked more questions or whether he went away hardened by Jesus' answer or by his 
you know, desire to keep a reputation. We don't know what happened to him. But if he did finally enter the kingdom, it's because he submitted his life to the logic in his own answer, in his own question. That loving God, that relationship with God is more important than the entire religious system that he's been following so rigidly his entire life. If he entered the kingdom, then that means he had to come to a place where he realized, I am a sinner separated from God. He had to come to a place where he cast himself upon the mercy of God and received the gift of repentance and and faith and salvation in Christ. The one that he's questioning, he had to submit to as Lord, the one who had the ability to take away his sin. And it's no different for any one of us that are sitting in this room this morning. So what about you, friend? Have you come to a place where you see your sin... Even the little white lie you told yesterday or the thing that you, that you thought was so small, have you seen your sin as rebellion against the holy God? Have you trusted Christ's finished work on the cross uh, for your salvation, your only hope of salvation, and repented of sin and confessed to, that, that, the Lord is, that Christ is the Lord and ruler of your life? Given him yourself. This is the way into the kingdom. This is the only way into the kingdom. That we would come to him in faith and repentance saying, I know that I couldn't do it, I couldn't earn it, I couldn't be good enough, but you died in my stead. You died in my place. Don't be guilty of being so near and missing it completely. Because here's the reality, friends. It's completely possible to have grown up in church, to have godly parents, and to have not come into a saving relationship with Jesus. It's completely possible to have studied theology and know your Bible, know the scriptures inside and out, have it memorized, and completely miss having a relationship with Jesus. It's completely possible to have heard of the grace of Jesus, preached your entire life, and not be resting upon that grace. It's completely possible to be so gospel-hardened, to have heard the gospel so much that you seal your eternal damnation while on a church pew week after week after week because you're unyielded to him. You could repeat it. You could recite it like the back of your hand, but you don't know him. You don't have a relationship with him. Friends, there's nothing on this planet like knowing Jesus as Lord and submitting to him. The peace and the the, the rest that comes with knowing your sins have been forgiven. This man, this scribe was right there. You there this morning? Are you there this morning? Don't delay, friends. Jesus says, love God and love people, but neither are possible until you've entered the kingdom by the blood of his son. Don't let pride keep you from submitting to him today. He is a king worth your entire life. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the word that we have, for the scriptures that instruct us in truth. How terrifying the thought that there may be some even here this morning that are so close, so near to the kingdom. Maybe even acknowledge some truth in what has been said this morning, but have not given their lives to this truth. Spirit, would you do a work in hearts this morning? For believers in the room, would you affirm the gospel to their souls that even right now as we sing in response, that the gospel would be life to them. They would rest in the grace of Christ. God, for ones in this room this morning that have never entered the kingdom, God, would you show them this morning that there is no hope outside of complete and utter surrender to Christ, repentance and faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross. 
We beg for you to move. Would you have your way in our hearts this morning? It's in the name of Christ I pray. Amen.